You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 161. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we are going to learn about how one city is taking responsibility for the trash that it produces, and setting a global example for how to stop plastic waste from entering our oceans. That city is Baltimore. And I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to chat with one of the key figures behind Baltimore's campaign to clean up their waterways. My name is Adam Lindquist, and I'm the director of the Healthy Harbor Initiative at the Waterfront Partnership of Baltimore. Waterfront Partnership is what's known as a business improvement district. Uh, There are business improvement districts in cities around the world, really. And even here in Baltimore, there's about five or six of them. Uh, what happens is the business community comes together and decides they want to create an organization to supplement city services. So in Baltimore, we have this iconic inner harbor. It's really the crown jewel of our city and and really of our state and the region. It's just this beautiful space. Um, And there are uh, major businesses um, in downtown Baltimore and surrounding the waterfront uh, who came together and said, we want to make sure that the waterfront is beautiful, clean, uh, and attractive for our employees, but also for the residents of the city and for the tourists coming to the city. So they created Waterfront Partnership in 2005. This organization, Waterfront Partnership, was working um, on the land side of the harbor for the first five years or so of its existence uh, when the business community came together and said, you know, the land looks great. You know, the landscaping's great. There's no trash on the ground, but the water in the harbor still looks awful. There's uh, there's too much trash in the water. Um, it seems like toxic or polluted. Um, maybe we should be doing something about the water, just like we do something about the land. And that really created uh, a new situation in Baltimore, which was to create kind of an environmental nonprofit that's led by the downtown business community. So uh, the the board of Waterfront Partnership pull, um, pulled together a group of experts and said, you know, we'd love to make this harbor, harbor, make the Baltimore Harbor safe again for swimming. And they asked the experts around the table to all take a stab at how long they thought it would take to make the harbor safe for swimming. And what they kind of agreed upon was that 10 years would be very aggressive, but doable. And so they, in 2010, launched the Healthy Harbor campaign to make the harbor safe for swimming and fishing by the year 2020. All right. So how are we doing with how? that? <laughs> it's 2018 now. So, I mean, we're two years away. Is that, Are we on track? It seems much closer now than it did in 2010. Um, it, we've, made, uh, we've made tremendous strides. And I would say that no, no urban waterway is going to be safe for swimming like 100% of the time. The nature of an urban area is that it's, it's very impervious. So when it rains, a lot of pollution gets washed into your waterways. So certainly after a, a large rainstorm, I don't think most urban, way, waterways, urban waterways are safe for swimming. 
Um, that being said, our goal is to get to a point where it's safe for swimming enough of the time that it can start to, that we can start to advertise and market it as such. And that's what we've seen happen in other cities. Uh, Boston, Massachusetts is a great example uh, where they have a flag system along the along the the Charles River. Your question of like, so we've made a ton of progress. I would say one of the things that when you have a um, when you have an environmental initiative led by the business community, one of the things that uh, happens is you get these these great big uh, big deadlines, uh, and those deadlines, like a swimmable harbor in ten years, really prompt you to think about how you're going to do things differently, because the status quo wasn't going to get us there, wasn't going to move the needle, and so we set about really looking for new and innovative solutions to some of the pollution problems in the Baltimore Harbor. And that's where you get something like Mr. Trash Wheel. Uh, we've also done floating wetlands. We are now growing a quarter of a million oysters in the Baltimore Harbor every year. Um, so it really inspired us and people in the city to get creative and to think differently about the problem. Let's start off with Mr. Trash Wheel because I, I think that's uh, it's a particularly uh, fascinating project. And that was what really what caught my attention um, about this whole project and uh, inspired me to reach out to you. Uh, so the Mr. Trash Wheel was invented here in Baltimore. He was invented by a, a local man named John Kellett. Uh, John Kellett worked in the Inner Harbor. Uh, he worked on historic ships in Baltimore. And he used to walk across a river every day um, on his way to work and see all of this trash flowing down the river. <clears throat> and he's the one who really had this idea that, hey, you know, 100 years ago, Baltimore industry was being powered by water wheels, right? That's how, that's how we were producing, um, producing cotton, uh, producing fabric for making sails. All of Baltimore's industry was powered by water wheels operating on the Jones Falls River. And so John said, you know, why can't we use that same source of power to uh, why can't we harness the power of the river once again and use it to pick up the trash that's coming down the river? So it doesn't go out into the harbor and it doesn't go into the Chesapeake Bay or out into the Atlantic Ocean, which is where all of our trash would end up. If we didn't capture it with Mr. Trash, it would end up in the great garbage patches out in the oceans. So uh, so John, uh, John really drew up this idea on a napkin. And before Waterfront Partnership got involved, he was able to build a pilot trash wheel at the end of the Jones Falls. We're talking about 2008. And that pilot project operated for about eight months um, and before it was kind of uh, shut down and, and that uh, original water wheel was kind of decommissioned. But over those eight months, the downtown business community and the Waterfront Partnership just saw an immediate impact um, on how much trash, you know, so much less trash was ending up in our water around our marinas. So as soon as that pilot ended, uh, my board approached John Kellett and said, uh, uh, you know, hey, let's figure out how to build a bigger, better, uh, more longer lasting trash wheel for the Jones Falls. Very cool. So uh, maybe you can just briefly describe for folks what Mr. Trash Wheel is. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, so clearly, like, we're, the idea behind it is harnessing the power of the river to collect trash, right? But, uh, I mean, what, is, what does it look like and how does it, how does it do that? Right. Well, Mr. Trash Wheel is, uh, I, I always like to say, Mr. Trash Wheel is, is kind of two different things. Um, first, he is an amazing and sustainable piece of new technology, which I'll go into in more detail. Uh, and then he's also a kind of behavior change, engagement, and marketing campaign run by the Waterfront Partnership of Baltimore. So starting with the technology, 
the trash wheel, it's not, one thing I always have to remind people is it's not a Roomba. It doesn't roam around the harbor looking for trash. It stays at the end of the river permanently because it has to use the current of that river to turn a giant water wheel. Um, that water wheel powers a system of rakes and a conveyor belt that pull trash out of the river. Trash that's funneled to the front of the device by a series of, uh, by two bright orange booms that are connected to either side of the river, funnel trash coming down to the front of the device. The rakes and conveyor belt put that trash into a dumpster barge on the back of the device. When that dumpster is full, it can be floated away by a boat and an empty dumpster installed. Now we are in a tidal environment, so sometimes when the tide's coming in, the river is actually going the wrong way. Uh, so we don't have that water current. And in order to address that, we've installed 30 solar panels on the back of Mr. Trash Wheel. So he's either running at any given time on hydropower, solar power, or some combination of the two. Very cool. And it sounds like this process is mostly automated. So the only sort of uh, the only thing that a human would have to do is come pick up the trash when the, the bin gets filled. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, Mr. Trash Wheel is like a semi-autonomous uh, so what's really cool is the Clearwater Mills, the company that uh, that John now owns, um, and we have a contract with Clearwater Mills for operation and maintenance of the trash wheels. So he actually has a webcam on the device and a smartphone app that allows them to see if there's trash in the water, and when there is, he can turn it on and off with his smartphone. He can make it go faster, make it go slower. It's actually really cool. Now, when there's a big, big storm, um, and when that dumpster is filling up, and we filled up 16 dumpsters after a single storm, so we can fill up a lot of dumpsters. When that's happening, we do have a crew who goes out there and has to rotate the dumpsters and make sure that there aren't any uh, trash dams forming in front of the trash wheel. Um, but certainly, uh, yeah, we're not using nearly the amount of manpower that it would take to, say, go around and pick up uh, tra pieces of trash individually in the water kind of once they reach open water. Mm-hmm. Super fascinating. And then the other aspect of it, which you mentioned, is that you're using this as, as a promotional tool, right? To, I, I'm guessing to try to encourage people to like not dump their trash, right? And to like keep the, the harbor clean. Absolutely. Uh, when I started my job, um, and I was hired to uh, push forward this restoration plan for the Baltimore Harbor. And one of the first things I noticed was that there weren't there weren't a lot of people engaged in the cleanup of the Baltimore Harbor. You talk to people and they tell you, oh, the, you know, if you put your hand in the water, your flesh is going to melt off. Um, <laughs> that there's nothing alive in the water. That it's a completely dead ecosystem. Right. And, you know, so, I think, so I'm thinking to myself, if these are the perceptions that people have, how are we ever going to convince people that, that things can change? How are we going to promote a culture shift towards restoring and saving the Baltimore Harbor. So every project that I um, that I implemented through the Healthy Harbor campaign has been designed to help improve the environment, uh, maybe create some habitat, uh, maybe clean up pollution. But the one thing they all have in common is that they are engaging for the public um, because I need people to get involved in the restoration of the harbor. Um, and so that's why when we had this trash interceptor, we didn't just want to be picking up people's trash. We certainly didn't want people to think, oh, I can throw my trash in this river because Mr. Trash Wheel's hungry and he wants to eat it. That's the wrong message. So we decided to put googly eyes onto this trash interceptor, which kind of makes it look like it has a face, a really happy, almost Muppet-like face. Uh, and we made Mr. Trash Wheel into a mascot for the restoration of the harbor. Uh, we gave him a Twitter account. Now he's on Instagram and Facebook. Not on Snapchat, though. We haven't figured that out. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's got now thousands of followers 
and I think it's actually really broadened our reach because now we are able to reach an audience that um, is interested in Mr. Trash Wheel because he's entertaining, silly, and gross, uh, which sometimes those people are not the same people as the environmentalists that you would reach with a more traditional outreach campaign. So certainly this aspect of the Healthy Harbor campaign has been extraordinarily successful. I'm sure you're measuring that success through a variety of metrics, like both the quantity of trash that's being collected, but probably also like the level of engagement that you're getting out of uh, this, this, this resource. Absolutely. We have, a, we have a lot of metrics. And that's another thing I think is really when you're driven by the business community, they like good quantitative metrics. Right. Um, and I've, I've been trying to incorporate more qualitative metrics because I think those are important too. Uh, but certainly, yeah, we've picked up over 900 tons of trash and debris since we started operating in May of 2014. And we're actually able to estimate how many of different types of trash end up in our dumpsters. Over 10 million cigarette butts, for example, and about 800,000 styrofoam containers have been pulled out of the water. And this is information we can use to push for policy change. As a matter of fact, just a couple months ago, uh, we testified in front of city council using trash wheel data to help support a ban on styrofoam containers for Baltimore City restaurants, uh, which... You know, we weren't the only people pushing for that. There was a lot. There was a great group effort, uh, lots of nonprofits and Baltimore City students participating in that. But we really believe the trash wheel data had a lot of power to convince our elected officials that this is a real problem. Again, being driven by the business community, I mean, I, I assume you have to pay attention to the, the cost of operating as well. I mean, is this is this a cost effective way to to remove garbage from this ecosystem? Uh, we've done some studies and found that it is uh, it is 10 times cheaper to remove trash kind of at the end of the river. It's We call it the last best place to get trash out of water, right? Because it kind of bottlenecks at the end of the river. Uh, we found that it's 10 times more expensive just to go out into the open water of the Baltimore Harbor and chase it down with skimmer boats, which is another way that cities often address their trash problems on their waterways. Um, that being said, you know, it's not, it's not free to operate the trash wheel. And we get, I get calls every week from cities around the world who want to implement this technology. Mm. Uh, and one of the, I think the biggest challenges is that people just assume that if you buy a trash wheel, that then the rest of it is, is like free. Um, but it's not. It costs us about $150,000 a year to operate the two trash wheels that we have. We have Mr. Trash Wheel and Professor Trash Wheel. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so and that cost goes into, um, of course, the manpower um, to to change out the dumpsters. The, the guys who run the trash wheel are basically like experts on weather now because so much of our trash, 95 percent of the trash we pick up is rain driven. So when it's raining, that's what they're doing our work. So the guys who operate it, they are watching the weather like a hawk because they know they need to be out there doing their job. And this past July, this was the rainiest July Baltimore has ever had in the history of weather tracking. Um, so they've been really hard at work. Mr. Trashwheel has been eating a lot of trash lately. <laughs> Very cool. To me, I mean, you, you give me that sort of ballpark, like cost of maintaining these, these two trash wheels. That doesn't sound like a, a huge amount of money, given the benefit that the whole community is, is getting out of it. And yet you say like that lots of cities and municipalities are interested, but reluctant to foot the, the cost. 
most cities, sadly, um, and when I say cities, I don't just mean governments, but I mean the people who live in cities as well, are more than okay with letting their trash um, go, leave their streams, leave their rivers, and go out into, uh, into the ocean and into their bays and harbors. Uh, cities have not really, before Mr. Trash Wheel, cities were not taking responsibility or ownership for the trash in their waterways. And that's a big problem because every because the cities right now they're saying, hey, we're not we're not paying to do anything with the trash in our waterways. We're just letting it go. Um, now, if we stop it and we put it in a dumpster, all of a sudden we own that trash, and now we've got to figure out how to dispose of it. And so I do think Mr. Trash Wheel has promoted a culture change, and I do think Baltimore is one of the first cities that I've ever seen take this step and say, you know, we're not going to let our trash go out into the Chesapeake Bay. We're going to stop it here and take care of it. And to its credit, Baltimore City does fund about half of our operation and maintenance costs, which uh, is a huge help. Absolutely. And, you know, I I feel like and, and I hope that, that that is changing because, I mean, this is I think this is the, the, the idea of um, collecting trash before it reaches the ocean. And I think just generally um, the awareness surrounding uh, the problems that our planet faces as a result of, you know, primarily plastic pollution like that issue is, I, I think, just within the last year to six months really been put pushed into the, the forefront of, you know, uh, the consciousness of a lot more people. And it's 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 just it's really awesome that that you guys have this amazing example of an effective, efficient way to do it that has all these side benefits because you're promoting this idea of better practices and, and awareness simultaneously while while also collecting all of this trash. Well, thank you, um, and I do think that we are moving into a, a sea change in public opinion about you know what what is okay to let. Um, leave your city's waterways and go out into the oceans. Uh, and but I will say again, like the trash wheel is at the last best place to capture trash. The first best place is before it gets littered, before it leaves somebody's hand and ends up on the ground. And that's so important to us. You know, it, it, we wouldn't be happy just endlessly picking up trash out of the river. Uh, um, that's not our mission. Our mission is to promote behavior change. First here in Baltimore and anywhere else we can reach people. Um, anywhere we've had school kids from, uh, from, from all over the country who make their own like mini trash wheels as like a science project, uh, that kind of reach is just, uh, really inspiring to see. So uh, let's move on and talk about, you know, some of the other projects that are associated with the Healthy Harbor initiative. What else comes to the forefront of your mind as far as the impact that you've been able to have? Uh, our biggest impact outside of the trash wheels has probably been something called the, that we call the Great Baltimore Oyster Partnership. Uh, you know, to kind of counteract that perception that the Baltimore Harbor is uh, is dirty and toxic and dead, uh, we brought in uh, baby oysters, which you call spat, uh, spat on shell to be specific. And when we started growing Spat on Shell in the Baltimore Harbor, there were other nonprofits who told us, you know, this is never going to work. Uh, these oysters aren't going to survive. The water is not salty enough. Um, the rainstorms bring too much fresh water. In case you don't know, oysters need salt water to live. Um, but, but we thought, let's give it a try and see what happens. And so I think we planted maybe 40,000 oysters that first year. And we saw survival rates of around 80%, which is phenomenal because in the wild, Spat have a 1% survival rate. Wow. Um, 
<laughs> so, so that was terrific. And now we've expanded it and we're growing about a quarter of a million oysters uh, around the Baltimore Harbor each year. And the way this program works is volunteers adopt oyster gardens. And these oysters are just for restoration purposes. You wouldn't want to eat an oyster growing in the Baltimore Harbor. But volunteers come out and they take care of oysters for nine months when they go from being about the size of a pinhead uh, to growing up to be about the size of a quarter. And once they're the size of a quarter, they can live on their own. And so we transplant them to an oyster sanctuary reef in the Chesapeake Bay. So we're providing this continuous supply of healthy uh, you know, one-year-old oysters to a reef in the Chesapeake Bay. And while the volunteers are taking care of their oysters, not only are they seeing that the oysters survive, but they get to see all this other great life that is in the harbor. I love it when a volunteer will pull out an oyster cage and there'll be like a blue crab hanging off the side of it or grass shrimp jumping out of the oysters. Uh, it, it's really inspiring and it makes people, helps people realize that the harbor is a living, breathing ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, this is a really cool project as well. And I think it's another example of one of these um, one of these ideas uh, where there's now quite a bit of evidence showing like the huge benefit that um, that oysters can provide to uh, cleaning up waterways. Right. I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about like what what are the oysters doing? Like, how are they providing this benefit? How are they helping clean up the harbor? Sure. Oysters are, are first and foremost filter feeders. Uh, a grown oyster can filter up to 50 gallons of water every single day. And in fact, historically, there were enough oysters in the Chesapeake Bay that all of the water in the bay passed through an oyster every three days. Uh, now it takes the remaining oysters over a year to filter that same amount of water. So our oyster population is down to about 2% of what it used to be. They also provide habitat. Um, and I talked a little bit about the grass shrimp, um, the blue crabs, uh, but it's amazing to me how when you recreate the habitat that used to be found in Baltimore Harbor, uh, you know, 200 years ago, there were oyster reefs that were as tall as a man, you know, six feet up in the air. When you recreate that ecosystem, even in a small way, life just kind of comes blocking back to it, which is really inspirational to see. It's more than just cleaning up the harbor, right? I mean, that's that's ecosystem restoration and reintroducing, uh, you know, a species, reintroducing a what sounds like was almost certainly a keystone species um, to this ecosystem oh, okay. and bringing it back um, and then seeing the, the positive cascading effects that, that come along with that. Yeah, I mean, Baltimore was historically the oyster canning capital of the world. Uh, there was a time when if you were eating canned oysters, uh, they were, no matter where you were, they probably came from the Chesapeake Bay. Very cool to see that coming back. What else? Are there any other interesting projects uh, going on uh, in the harbor that, that you want to mention? Uh, I mean, when we talk about engagement, uh, we, we also um, talk about getting people out on the water. So there's no quicker way to turn people into environmental advocates than to put them on like a kayak or maybe a stand-up paddleboard mm -hmm. and actually go around the Baltimore Harbor. And once you have that water splashing on your lap, you are becoming very much more interested in how clean that water is. Uh, so, and we've seen this culture of kayaking grow and stand up paddle. I mean, I've seen people stand up paddle boarding in the Baltimore Harbor in the dead of winter. 
in wetsuits. So but every year we have more and more paddlers in the Baltimore Harbor, which is terrific. And in order to build on that, we actually start launching an annual event that we call the Baltimore Flotilla, which is an annual ra- paddling rally for clean water. So every year we kind of pick a theme, and on a Saturday morning in June, we get as many kayakers as we can to rally in the Baltimore Harbor. Everyone makes their own rally signs. We usually do a large floating sign, uh, depending on our theme. So the first year, it was Fix the Pipes, talking about the city's sewer system and its the need to repair it. Um, the second year, it was Fund the Bay, uh, due to the federal government's threats to eliminate funding for the Chesapeake Bay program. Uh, and last year, it was Harbor Love, and we were just celebrating everybody's love of the Baltimore waterfront. And uh, that's a super inspirational day. Uh, actually, I, I urge you to check out some of our amazing drone footage of 350 paddlers rallying in Baltimore Harbor. Uh, so that's another way that we've gotten people out um, onto the water and uh, get them interested in cleaning up the water. Very cool stuff. I wonder, um, did did you grow up in Baltimore? Are you? Or how long have you lived in the in the area? No, I moved to Baltimore in uh, 2007. Uh, I moved here originally to go to grad school, where I got my master's in urban planning. I'm originally from upstate New York. Uh, and actually living in upstate New York, I feel like that's where I really forged uh, a really strong connection to waterways. Um, I grew up around the uh, Ithaca region, which is just full of these uh, finger lakes and these beautiful gorges and waterfalls. And I feel like having that access to water uh, really affected me as a child. And when I would move down to Baltimore and found uh, that people didn't have anything close to resembling that kind of access to clean and beautiful water, I thought, you know, this is that's something that people really need to feel like they're connected to their environment. Could you describe sort of the change that you've seen, you know, over the last 10 plus years, you know, since since you moved there? I mean, uh, it's like as a resident of the city, um, I mean, how how noticeable is this this transformation that has occurred? I mean, I think it's very I think it's very substantial. Uh the downtown population of Baltimore has been booming, uh, which means more and more people are looking to the Baltimore Harbor kind of as their backyard. Because if you live in downtown Baltimore, you probably don't have a backyard. And if you do, it's probably paved. Uh, so people are looking to the waterfront as their source of recreation. Um, and so we've really had to become more responsive to that. You know, God, think just think about even just 50 years ago, Baltimore's inner harbor was an industrial uh you know, superpower. It was chromium plants. It was shipping cargo. Uh, it was, you know, nobody was thinking, oh, let's go swim in the Baltimore Harbor. Um, and that's, I think, something a lot of people forget is that the Baltimore Harbor today is cleaner than it's been in a hundred years. Uh, you know, it's still not where we want it to be, um, but we've come a long, long way. An inspirational story, I think, on multiple levels, right? Like both for the city of Baltimore itself. Um, but also, as I said before, like you're clearly setting an example for other cities and other municipalities all around the country and around the world, both for like how to improve quality of life, right? But also how to solve these problems that are big global problems. Like how do you prevent plastic waste from entering the ocean and causing this uh, much larger issue that we have to deal with as a species? You know, another thing I would say is... Uh... In order to keep Mr. Trash Wheel turning, we've actually done quite a bit of merchandising, mm. which is uh, which is um, not something I expected to get into when I was uh, going into the nonprofit field. 
Um, but thanks to the affinity that people have for Mr. Trash Wheel, uh, I, mean, I think we started off by selling T-shirts. Uh, we have T-shirts that say Keeping It Wheel. We have Feel the Churn T-shirts. Um, and then uh, on top of that, got just this week, we launched a Mr. Trash Wheel plushie. So now people are able to purchase a 16-inch fluffy version of Mr. Trash Wheel, uh, which is just adorable. And we also have produced... Uh, produce craft beers here locally. Uh, we partnered with a local brewery called Peabody Heights, uh, and they produced their first beer about two years ago, and we named it Mr. Trash Wheel's Lost Python Ale, uh, after the time that Mr. Trash Wheel picked up a lost python in the Baltimore Harbor. Uh, it would have been somebody's like lost pet or forgotten pet, uh, and, or escaped pet, and it got washed down the Jones Falls in a stream and looked or in a storm and was looking for the easiest way to get out of the water uh, and, of course, ran into Mr. Trash Wheel. So our team went out there uh, one morning and just saw this uh, five-foot-long python snake wrapped up around the power inverter, which is like the uh, the warmest spot on Mr. Trash Wheel. Mm -hmm. And uh, we weren't going to touch it, so we called up uh, we actually called up the National Aquarium, which is also here in Baltimore, and they sent over their curator Jack Cover to, uh, to to see what was going on. And apparently, ball pythons are a very common pet because uh, Jack had no problem picking up the snake and, and 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 putting it on his shoulders and showing it off. So I, that's when we learned, okay, it must not be a uh, be a poisonous snake. But it did turn out to be a slow news day in Baltimore uh, because that evening, every news station in Baltimore went live with the snake on Mr. Trash Wheel. So it was a big story. And if there's one thing people remember about Mr. Trash Wheel, it's that time he picked up a python snake. So that's why we named our beer Mr. Trash Wheel's Lost Python Ale. <laughs> that's great. It's amazing, the stuff that comes, it's amazing the stuff that comes out of the river. Um, even just, just last month, uh, we got our first mattress. Uh, so, so Mr. Trashwell now has a very soggy Airbnb listing. Uh, uh, he's also picked up a guitar that I have at home. Um, it, it doesn't sound very good <laughs> for a while, but you know, and a hula hoop, there's this like platform, high heel platform shoe that he picked up, which has become very, very popular on our, on our, on our social media feed. Um, I guess we, figured, we should like make it. Now I'm thinking about it. We should make a T-shirt featuring that shoe because people are so into the fact that Mr. Trashwheel. I mean, I don't know who had a had a rough night out on town and had their high high heel platform shoe end up in the river. <laughs> but it's it's amazing, and that's kind of the cool thing. Like you're educating people about the impact that trash has on our waterways, but also entertaining them with the bizarre stuff that uh, comes out of the water. Right. It's it's fantastic. It's great. Um, and and if, I, I got to point out that you're wearing this fantastic uh, uh, Mr. Trash Wheel T-shirt that says "Stay Trashy, Baltimore." Yeah, yeah that's our little Anchorman homage. Uh, we're always looking for a good uh, good slogan that has a good trash or uh, or wheel pun. Yes, fantastic. We'll have to get a photo of you with that shirt to put on the uh, the show notes page so folks can see that because that's fantastic. Awesome. <laughs> One of the things we've launched is a whole community organizing program uh, in order to work with neighborhoods upstream of Mr. Trash Wheel to reduce the amount of trash we're getting in the in the first place. Mm. Because, you know, honestly, we want to put Mr. Trash Wheel out of business. We would like him to be able to retire to Florida, uh, where I'm sure there's plenty of delicious trash for him to eat. 
Um, so one of our programs that I'd like to share with you is called the Alley Makeover Program. And we'll actually go into communities and we'll work with leaders in those communities to identify their dirtiest alleys, uh, their most troublesome spots. And then we will do a series of workshops. We'll host block parties to help residents come out and meet each other. We give away recycling bins so that residents can learn about recycling. And over a course of a couple of weeks, we will start to really change a dirty alley and transform it into a communal and useful space again for the community. And we call it the Alley Makeover Program because we'll also stipend local artists who will paint murals onto these alleys to remind residents of the connection that they have to their waterways. Uh, just as an example, one particular block in Baltimore on the east side decided to paint their entire alley to look like a stream that now flows beneath their neighborhood um, in pipes. Uh, but they painted it on their alley as like a free-flowing stream with turtles and fish. And that was just a really incredible, inspirational thing to see. And speaks to what we're trying to do in the communities upstream of Mr. Trash Wheel, because we don't just want to be picking up trash. That's fantastic, and that's really cool to hear. Um, because you're right, it's like there has to be a solution beyond just collecting trash. You don't want to just be collecting that quantity of trash into perpetuity um thanks a lot for agreeing to to chat with me and come on the show it was a really good sort of hopeful upbeat conversation we we, we believe that there we believe there's a lot of hope um we've actually do a report there's a lot of good reasons to have hope we actually issue an annual report on water quality in the baltimore harbor and last year our report showed the water cleaner than it had ever been since we started this monitoring program so we're very excited by that we know that weather plays a role and that you know there can be blips on your radar um but we think that that was a very strong sign that we're headed in the right direction all right that was our conversation with adam lindquist from the waterfront partnership of baltimore be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode to see photos of both Mr. Trash Wheel and Professor Trash Wheel, as well as more information about all the fantastic work associated with the Healthy Harbor Initiative. Those show notes can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC161. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of the Wildlands Collective. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. 